as a male in Asian society, there is this stigma against asking for mm. help and mental health oftentimes is brought up as people will look at that and they'll be, that's not real, <laughs> right? It's like, you should just work. And the more you work, the less you'll think about that. But with everything around us now, all of that noise, I do think it's important for everybody, but particularly for those on that startup journey right. to ask for help. It's well accepted that if you're a musician that wants to do well in your field, you would have a mm. teacher. It's well accepted that if you're training for the Olympics, that you would have a coach. Right. But for some reason, that hasn't translated into all of the fields out there. And it hasn't translated as well from the West into this part of the world. Right. And so that's something that, that I want to change. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.braveseha.com. Meet Rinkas, your go-to digital mortgage platform breaking down financial barriers for home seekers across Indonesia and Southeast Asia. They operate in more than 15 cities in partnership with all major Indonesian banks and premier property developers. Rinkas is on a mission to democratize home ownership and create over 100 million new homeowners. Don't just dream about owning a home, make it a reality. Explore more at www.rinkas.co.id. Hey, Andy, really excited to have you on the show. You're an incredible coach, leader, and advisor, and you're also the GP at Wavemaker. So very much appreciate you coming in to share a little bit about your story. Jeremy, I'm excited to be here. So thanks so much for having me. Could you introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, absolutely. So I was born in California in this small town called Cupertino, where I could literally see Apple compute from my backyard. My parents, they came to the US from Taiwan for graduate school. They're part of this first wave of Asian immigrants that went to go work into the valley. They worked in tech. My parents bought me a share of Apple stock when I was five. That first got me interested in technology. Over the years, I've worked for a few tech companies, Google, Facebook, Stripe, always on the B2B side. And so that's really shaped how I look at the tech world. And I'm now based in, in Singapore, as you are. I've been here the last 11 years, came here as part of Facebook's expansion into Asia, setting up their headquarters in Singapore. I've got two kids, two daughters. They are ages nine and 11. They keep my wife and I on our toes. And I joined Wavemaker, as you said, last year. So it's an early stage venture capital firm focused on B2B companies or companies that sell into businesses such as large businesses, small businesses, governments, nonprofits. Amazing. So now I have to ask, Andy, what were you like as a student university back in the days? Were you curious? Were you fun? I'm just so curious. Yeah, even before I was a student, I would say, I think this frustrated my parents a lot as I was growing up because there was always a question and then the constant asking of why. Mm -hmm. And this is part of 
growing up in, in my household where even though I grew up in California, you've got to imagine my parents essentially raised me as if I grew up in Taiwan. So there was Mandarin only in the household until I was about five. And then when I started to step outside for kindergarten, that world of the US was just completely different than what I had ever known. Mm -hmm. And so my life in many ways, including being a student, has really been shaped by those two perspectives. And I think that got me curious mm -hmm. in my younger days, but it also really helps me now because when I approach something, either something I've seen before or something I haven't seen before, just to keep asking questions to understand it. What were the questions that you used to ask? I'll, I'll give you an example. My parents opened up a bank account for me when I was five. Wow. And it was great because this was when banks were paying interest into savings accounts of 7% a year. Amazing. So we think interest rates are high now and they were much higher then. So I asked my parents, I said, how could the bank possibly pay me 7% interest every year? And they said, oh, it's because the bank takes your money and then they're loaning it out at 17% for people to buy yeah. houses. And that was my first foray into understanding what the role of a bank was. Right. Or the first time that I traveled to Taiwan, I literally thought I was rich because my parents told me that one US dollar was worth 30 Taiwanese dollars. I counted the money that I had, <laughs> emptied my piggy bank, and I said, I'm going to go to Taiwan and it's going to be great because I'm going to be able to buy all the stuff. Mm. And then I get to Taiwan and you figure out, oh, it doesn't work mm. that way because a Coke in Taiwan costs 30 Taiwanese dollars and not one Taiwanese dollar oh, as I thought it no. would. It's this combination of asking questions as well as the life experiences that I think shapes me to who I am. Yeah, amazing. I've been multiple times to Taiwan and every time, like you said, the food is great, but definitely it's always a bit of a mind trip some of this currency and everything makes sense and so there you are you've been building and learning and then you decided to join technology and you know you did some stint as consulting but what was it like to make the decision to go into technology yeah for me because i grew up in tech yeah. I grew up in Cupertino, I think it was natural for me to go the tech angle. Where I was a bit different is that my parents really came from an engineering background. Mm. All the, the friends that I had growing up eventually went into some type of engineering, started their own companies. But because my parents had bought that share of Apple stock for me when I was five, that then got me super yeah. curious because every morning when I went outside, I would go get the newspaper. Right. And then I would, of course, take out two sections of the newspaper. Right. The first one being sports, have to read sports first. <laughs> and then the second one was business. Yeah. And then in the business section, that's where all the stock quotes, including Apple was. Right. And then naturally, I started asking questions. Why did the stock go up? Why did the stock go down? And then in 1987, you open up the newspaper one day and it was the big crash. Right. And then all the stocks went down. Right. So it got me curious to then there's one day I still remember I went to my parents and I said, hey, this whole computer and engineering thing that you're doing is mm. great. I think I want to do business. And they're like, what does that even mean? <laughs> and I didn't even know what that meant. I only yeah. said business because that was what the section of the yeah. newspaper was called. Yeah. And they said, hey, we're going to be supportive of you doing this. Just realize because of our background, we may not be able to help as much. Right. I think it's interesting. So there you are, you, you focus on the business side of it for the air quotes there. And then your parents are the engineering side. So what was that? I wouldn't say divide, but what was that culture change or difference that you felt? Well, if you're familiar with how Taiwanese and many Chinese households yeah. was, the parents don't care whether you're 
doing engineering or business. I'm like a five-year-old talking. <laughs> and even as I grew up in the household, yeah. of course, when things break in the house, computers need to get built, right. printers start to malfunction. Right. I'm the business right. person, but I'm still IT support, Always. right? Yeah. And so in, in many ways, even though I had that interest about what drove numbers, yeah. I still learned the engineering side just by being immersed with friends mm. and, and parents. So I think that's where I come out the other end, probably a combination of the two. Right. I can empathize with how companies are started and how much engineering work goes into them. Right. But then I also try and zoom out and look at things from a business perspective. Amazing. And there you are, you know, you build your career and you've gone through and worked with multiple tech companies, but also risen the ranks. But you also made a geographic transition from California to Southeast Asia. So walk me through how some of the decisions you made in your career during this time. Yeah. After undergrad, I went into consulting and the consulting that I did specifically focused on strategy consulting in the tech sector. Right. And within tech, I could quickly see, got my first exposure to hardware companies, software companies, internet services companies. And I could quickly see internet services was where a lot of the change and innovation was happening. Right. After business school, I was fortunate enough to get at mm -hmm. Google. But I remember when I was talking to the recruiter at Google, she said, hey, we definitely want you to join, but it's about nine months before you start. Right. We're growing really fast right now. So we'll let you know two weeks beforehand which group you're going to mm -hmm. be in. And then two weeks before they said, hey, you're going to be working on this B2B marketing right. team. And in my mind, I'm thinking, what is B2B? Right. Isn't Google just a search right. engine? And then I quickly saw once I joined, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> B2B for Google means how do you bring new advertisers onto the platform? Right. And then this is how companies like Google make their revenue, the margins and the profit. That got me really hooked on, right. on B2B. Right. From there, then I joined Facebook when it was a much smaller company. Right. Uh, just as it was starting to think about how do you bring new SMEs onto the platform? Right. Because by that time, Facebook had a lot of users right. using it, but not necessarily a lot of smaller businesses right. yet. They haven't figured out how do you bring on small businesses yeah. at scale. Right. And so because I was early at headquarters, then after a couple of years, they came up to me and they said, hey, Andy, we're interested in expanding to Asia. You're Asian. We trust you. Can you go with a small group of folks and help us set up our presence right. there? That was late 2011, early 2012. Right. Came here with my wife and our newborn at the mm. time. And then it was an incredible run because frankly, the business grew faster right. than any of us thought that it right. would. And I could also see that because I had come in on the ground floor, I had gotten off the airplane with that Facebook t-shirt. People trusted right. me for right or right. wrong, probably their mistake. But then I was able to ride that right. wave as the business grew for Facebook, the SME platform. Yeah. And for us at Facebook at the time, Asia meant everything from India to New Zealand. Right. And so we were into a sizable business. And then of course, a lot of learnings came out of that as well. What was interesting is you also made a geographic shift as well. And I think that was a very non-intuitive move from my perspective, because 10 years ago, right? I think obviously Southeast Asia, there's a lot of demographic and all these other things that we all say and talk about. But to make the decision to do that and to and help be the founding team member in APAC. Can you walk us through a little bit about why you were thinking about that? Yeah, this is probably one of the lessons that I've had over time because prior to that, I had had a couple of opportunities and I had in my mind overestimated the amount of risk. Mm. And, and this is what I mean. Yeah. When my parents first came to the US from Taiwan, right. their parents would have given them a little bit of money to pay for the plane mm. ticket. And then my parents would have gone to the US and, and had to send money 
family right. home, right? And so for me, that is real risk right. because if you go to this new geography and things don't work, you're, you're really right. stuck. You have to make it right. work. And I think because I had seen my parents go through all of that effort, I had associated risk in those terms rather than thinking about different safety right. nets that were created over right. time. When I was working at Google, there was an opportunity yeah. to, to Latin America. Right. When I was deciding whether to join Facebook, initially it was a hard decision because Google is a great right. job. And then when I finally got my head around the fact that if you do right by the people that you work right. with, there's always going to be some sort of safety nets. Right. And they'll always be supportive of you going back. When I finally realized that and was, was able to assess risk correctly, mm -hmm. then that made it much easier for me to do things like work at new geographies or even change companies, right. knowing that the people that I had tried to help along the way, mm -hmm. if I ever needed it, they would be there for me as well. What do you think people misjudge risk from your perspective? I think people oftentimes see it as a zero one mm -hmm. thing. And there's this book that I've been reading by Sikinder Singh Cassidy. She used to run StubHub and then also APAC in, in LATAM for Google. And I agree with her assessment. Risk oftentimes is I either sit here and do nothing or I jump off a cliff. I think this is really what prevents yeah. people from moving even or even standing up right. versus risk in my eyes is much more here's where I am today. Here's where I want to grow. Here's where I could be. Here are a few things that I can test along the way so that at some point, if I decide to take an alternate mm -hmm. path, it won't be this leap of blind faith, right. but I'll already I'll, I'll already know. It won't be 100% safe because that goes against this definition of risk, right. but at least I'll have an idea. And I think it's because people often see risk as being zero one right. that appropriately they say, oh, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to jump off mm. a cliff from where I am today. So I'm not going to do anything then. I'm going to stay comfortable. So you've gone through that set of decisions about understanding risk and you made that set of decisions. How else do you think yeah, showing up in your life? I would say in terms of a key part for me was even making the decision at some point to leave and set up a business of my own, angel investing, as well as starting to coach startup founders on, on all of the things that, that I would have learned from previous companies. Because on paper, that decision doesn't make much sense. Right. Because from the outside, you're in this role for 10 years where people know you and you keep getting more and more responsibility. Right. And then at the same time, I looked back on those nine or 10 years, I finally had the courage to ask myself, why is it that from the external perspective, I keep taking on more responsibility, mm -hmm. but I may not be enjoying it as much as I did in the earlier days. Yes. So then I asked myself that question over the past nine to 10 years, what was my favorite part of the right. journey? And I came to the realization that it was when I was in smaller groups, either coaching founders, the SMEs that I was working with, or it was coaching folks on, on, on my leadership team and then watching them to go on and do great things. Mm. And so after that, then I asked myself an even harder question. I said, what might it look like if I were spending 70, 80, 90% of my time doing right. that? And that was a difficult question because that was the question that made me realize this is probably the time mm. that I needed to, to experiment right. and try and create that career for myself if it didn't exist in the company. And again, using that risk assessment that we talked about earlier, if I'm wrong, then 
then I would just jump back mm. in and go back to what I was right. doing. But what if I'm right? What if I'm right that this is an area that I both enjoy and where people think that mm -hmm. my strengths are? Right. If I'm right, this could really be the beginning of, of a new 10 to 20 year career. And so I did take that jump and it's, it's led me down a path where now it's incredible. I get to work every day with founders building amazing companies. Right. And what's interesting is that you actually taken the time out to build that coaching certification as well, to learn that deliberate practice. I think coaching is something that a lot of folks say they do. A lot of people say that they advise and so, so forth, right? Everybody gives advice, everybody gets advice. Uh, so I'm just so curious that as you put down this structured practice to learn and get certified and dive deeper into it and master into it, what have been some lessons or changes in behavior that you had to make or some insights that you had to learn in order to step up to that different level? Yeah, as I think about coaching founders in, in the startup ecosystem, I think it starts from this place. Founding a company, working at a startup, it's a pretty lonely path. Right. Most of the startups that we back, it's a difficult process. It may not work out. Right. And there's a lot of stress associated with it yep. in terms of people, in terms of managing your costs. And you may feel that there's not a lot of people that you can talk yep. to. And then add on to that, oftentimes being a male or even being in Asia, there's even more of a stigma right. to asking for right. help. And so for me, I said, how in the same way that I've benefited and, and 10 years ago, I, I made a call that even though things look great on the outside, I felt like I needed a coach. And so I, I asked for help. Right. And I said, what might it look like if I could provide a level of support to the founders when they needed it, and that I could be their first call or first text right. when things go right, right or when they go wrong. Right. And I said, there's so many people like me out there, so many people on that founder right. journey. That was an investment that I was willing to make make. And probably the part of that journey that surprised me the most was that I ended up a very changed person. And maybe that's intuitive to most folks as you go through right. the training to become a coach that, of course, you would have to ask yourself those same hard questions that you're about to ask your clients. <laughs> For some reason, I hadn't thought so much of it. <laughs> and so to then ask yeah. myself those probing questions and have having to reflect then really helped me validate that I was in the right space working with the right people. That is ironic. I'm so curious, what are some questions that you were practicing or mastering to ask that you ended up asking yourself? Questions such as where should I be spending my time? Mm. How do I find the intersection of where what other folks say that I'm good at and what I enjoy? Because oftentimes in Chinese and Asian society, we're brought up not thinking about how much we enjoy something, mm. but purely based off of how we're performing off of it. Right. Because if, especially if you look at newer immigrants, yeah. you're not thinking about what you aspire to be yeah. at all. You're just thinking about taking whatever job to put money on the table. So it's super practical. Right. And so then how it applied to me was once I started asking myself those questions, making sure that I was spending my time doing the things that I enjoyed, mm -hmm. as well as where founders said I was helping them the most. Yeah. And then where this then translates into my conversations with founders and startups is each one of them is coming from a particular space of strength as well as enjoyment mm. and then encouraging them as founders to then surround themselves with the right people mm. so that they bring on other strengths mm. or even complement the strengths that they have, but potentially in areas that they enjoy less. Right. Because to me, especially in the early days, with how lonely a journey it is for those founders, if they can build that team, right. that's really where it's going to make the difference. On reflection, how do you think founders balance 
the loneliness of being the first to found something versus the tension of building the team that actually works, right? What advice have you normally given or what mistakes have you normally seen that could happen along the way? Yeah, the types of founders we work with at Wavemaker, it's very early stage. Right. So some of these companies, one or two founders, co-founders, oftentimes there's not much revenue as well. And so we want to be the ones to step forward and, and take risks along with the founders to say, hey, we believe in your vision. And, and frankly, these are risks that a lot of investors are not willing to take, but we we do want to step up to be that partner. Mm -hmm. And for us, it's all about letting founders know we believe in their vision and let's work together towards this. Right. And this is where me coming over to the VC side a year ago really reflects my background as a tech operator, mm. but also as a coach, right. because I want to be there. I want to be that first call or first text, either when things go right or things go right. wrong. I'll tell you a quick story. When I was first coaching, I had brought on a number of clients and I realized that the busiest part of my day, the busiest part of my week was something that I didn't expect at all. It was around Saturdays or Sundays around 9 p.m. Huh. And so I would get this text from a, a founder and it would say, hey, do you have five minutes to talk? I said, sure. And those five minutes would then turn into 90 right. minutes. And this started to happen from different founders over different weekends. Right. And then I asked myself, why is it always Saturday or Sunday at 9 Interesting. p.m.? And I came to the realization, it's because this is finally when founders don't have meetings right. and they're, they're still working on the business right. because they're on all the time. Right. But this is when they start to worry. Right. They start to worry about their employees, about hiring, about their families, about the funding. Right. And this is when they started to ask for help. Right. And so once I saw that, again, it's coming from this place of out of all the people that the founder could have reached out, they chose to reach out to me. And for me, I hold that trust right. sacred. Right. And these are the types of founders I want to work mm -hmm. with. And not only as a coach, but as a company, yeah. we want to be that first call. It's good things or bad things happen right. because we want to build a trust, a trusted partnership. I think there's a myth in VC that VC is about a capital business, mm -hmm. but I would disagree. I think VC is very much about the people business mm -hmm. because good people will always have options. Right. Good founders will always have multiple investors that want to work with them. Good limited partners or people that put money into VC funds will always have options of where do they invest their right. money. So for me, I see it very much as part of Wavemaker and what we do. We are in the people business as much as, if not more than the capital business. Mm. Because if we can build trusted relationships with founders and with limited partners and bring good people who always have alternate options together, that's the only chance that we have to do well. Right. This is really fascinating because I too also love coaching and I'm also in venture capital. And I think one thing I do feel and I agree with you especially is that there's both a lot of parallels and overlap, but there are also like dissonance as well in terms of the role. And the way I agree with you is that I was an early stage founder. I was a, a newbie, a noob, as I would normally say. Right. And I got a lot of help from some great VCs who had that coaching relationship with me and I had good trust and then we kind of walked through a lot of stuff together. Uh, and I grew a lot uh, during that time. So I think there's definitely something to be said about great investors who are great coaches as well. But I think from personal experience, also from the experiences of others, there are also VCs that are not coaches. And I think that's a totally viable investment strategy, actually, from a capital allocation perspective, from a returns perspective. So I think there's that dynamic where I'm, I'm kind of curious from your perspective. When you look at it, in what areas, if you are a founder, would you trust and be able to have that coaching relationship with VC? And what areas perhaps should a founder be more cautious about what that relationship is with their VC? Yeah, 
as a founder, and let's be clear, I've never been a founder. I've only worked with earlier stage companies. I think both capital right. as well as mentorship or coaching right. is, is important. Right. And that's why I do think a VC firm needs both as right. well. Having a bunch of coaches, but no capital isn't going to work and it's not that sustainable. Yeah. So in the example that you gave right. earlier, if you have VC firms that have a ton of capital to pour into founders, I think that only works for so right. long because my hypothesis is that if you're going to be a VC firm that delivers the best returns right. for your limited partners, you're going to need to find the best founders. Right. And why is it that the best founders will want to work with right. you. And so when capital was free, even 12 months right. ago, then you saw the founders taking capital from everywhere. Right. But now that capital is not free, right. then it comes back to, okay, because capital is not free, this is not just about growing. Right. This is also thinking about how do you run a business? How do you build a sustainable team? Right. How do you eventually create value right. as manifested by creating profits. Right. Profits are a great sign that your customers value what you're offering and they're willing to pay more for it than, than what it costs you. Right. So in this type of environment, which I would characterize as the normal, right. it's got to be some combination of people that can help you on the capital mm. side, but also people that can help you on the business. Right. And this is why even in VC, there's always this debate on whether a, a VC firm just with operators or with, with capital can make it. I think this is where even the firms need right. both. 100%. So as we double click on that, what areas of coaching do you feel that is most productive for VCs and founders to work together on? And what are areas they feel like perhaps is something that a founder should get help from other domains in their life, relationships or networks or community or other coaches? This is where I'll say it depends. Right. It depends a lot on the founder. Right. It depends on the type of company. It depends on the type of right. business. One of the characteristics that we see from our best founders, we've backed about 200 of them over the last 11 right. years, is that they put as much time and effort into building out their organization right. as they do building out their business. Right. And because one of the sectors that we invest in is deep tech, oftentimes you have these amazing founders with engineering PhDs who have created something world-class, but they're not used to building teams or running companies. Right. So we find that a lot of the coaching or the advisors that we bring in to help are about how do you build a team of people? Right. How do you actually commercialize this amazing product that you've built? How do you think about going from managing a team of individual contributors right. to having to grow your organization two, three, five, ten 10 times when that next round of funding comes in? That's probably the area right. that a lot of founders are, are not equipped to do. And they don't think necessarily about it in advance because they think that the product will carry itself and oftentimes it, it won't. I think one interesting thing that I do reflect on is that a dollar in the US goes a lot further in Southeast Asia, right? Uh, and so I think there's a certain type of fundraising pattern that startups go through. And one thing I've noticed is that I think founders are able to raise a certain amount of capital, but also able to, as a result, hire a lot more people than they normally would have had to in the US, for example, because of the cost of human labor in that sense, right? And so I think one thing I noticed I'm starting to reflect on compared to my you know, Southeast Asian and US experience is that I think a seed company often has twice the number of people I would normally see in the US and a Series A company is like maybe three or four times the size. And one reflection I had was that it just took me a long time to become a people manager, right? It just took me time to just slowly get from point A to point B, how to manage 10 people. I think everybody can do, but 20, 30, 40, that's when things start to go sideways. 
days and 100 is just another ball game altogether, right? So I'm just curious when you talk about the organizational leadership perspective, what are the areas that you often intensively coach people on versus feel like you can let them be a little bit more? Yeah, this is, Jeremy, maybe where I'll share my point of view on why within startups and in particular in the tech sector, coaching people, motivating them is so important. Because if we go back a couple hundred years, let's say the industrial transformation, and we're all working at a factory where there's one factory manager and there's a thousand workers. This at the time, the pinnacle of efficiency. But now if we look back at that, each of those thousand people are probably doing exactly the same thing. And then if one of them were to step out from their role, there's a thousand people outside the factory that want that job. In that world, it doesn't make sense for the factory manager to do one-on-ones with each of those thousand people every week because what they're doing is not differentiated. Now, in the Valley, what they found out during the 50s and 60s is that when you had a very great engineer, he or she could create hundreds of millions, if not billions of real value by themselves, and that the value of a great engineer versus an average engineer was probably 100x, if not 1,000x. And so it really was based off of this kernel of the engineer who could create something very valuable from nothing. And the fact that a very motivated engineer who is technically strong could create a lot more value than somebody who is average. That then got the tech companies saying, wow, if I could harness the power of this collective workforce, then this would be my differentiator. And I, I really do believe it's based off of these truths that then tech companies started to pay a lot more attention to things like span of control or how mm. many people each manager manages, right. as well as talking, having weekly one-on-ones with your direct reports. Because if you've hired the right way and you have that 100 or 1,000 next employee sitting in front of you, then the best thing that you could possibly do as a manager is to guide them, to unblock them, and then to get out of their way. And this is where I think technology, this industry is very different than the others, where there are physical limitations. I'll give you one more example. If we look at the Olympics, the fastest runner in the world can run 100 meters in, let's say, 9.7 seconds. And I'm a below average runner, and I could probably do 100 meters in 20 seconds. In the delta between somebody who is the best in the world at doing something with somebody like me who's below average is only 2x. And so it wouldn't make a lot of sense to recruit the best athletes in the world because there would be so much effort associated with that if you needed 100 or 1,000 of them. But again, if we're talking about the engineer example where you're bringing things into the online world, then if you find the right engineer or the right person, they can potentially create 1,000, 10,000 times more value than somebody else, then it makes a lot of sense why we as managers and leaders would want to invest heavily into them. Right. And how should managers, especially founders, and you mentioned, for example, first-time founders, think about managing and coaching and developing people? This is a tough one because they're coming at it from different angles. In the beginning, we find that a lot of the founders are really focused on building that product, which is great, which is absolutely the right thing to do. But what we also find is that for those companies that 
that do see that traction, then they're going to need growth. They're going to spend more on sales and marketing. They're going to get funding. And then it really is at that point, oftentimes the founders say, okay, now I feel stuck right. because now I'm being asked to do 10 or 15 things right. and half of them are outside my comfort zone or out of my zone of strength. Right. And then they say, well, I should probably hire 10 or 20 people. And, and that is already too right. late because to find the really good people, then you have to be looking all along. Right. So the lesson we oftentimes coach our founders on is how do you start thinking about building the organization right. as if it's going to scale right. so that you're ready when the time is there right. rather than after your product already has traction, after you've brought in the money already. Right. How do you bring in people from the outside or co-found the company with right. who have seen your, your current stage of growth, but have also seen one to two stages past that and they understand what does it mean to add a zero? Right. And adding a zero could mean adding a zero or adding two zeros could mean increasing your number of customers by 10x. What breaks internally right. in terms of systems, in terms of processes? What happens when you go from 10 employees to 100 to 1,000? Right. What would break in your system? What types of people would you need? Right. And then in a company that's three zeros away, and you are one person this year and 1,000 people a few years after that, what do you as a founder still want to be doing? Right. Do you still want to be on the engineering side? Do you want to be the face of the company on the fundraising side? So these are the conversations that we want to have with founders. And again, the best ones that we see are not only strong technically, right. especially the deep tech founders, but it's those that put as much thought into building the people side of their organization. Right. So honestly, there's not much we're going to be able to do to help help them on, on the technical right. side. We've got quantum computing companies, right, with six PhDs on their staff. There's nothing, there's absolutely nothing I could teach them about their field of study, mm -hmm. but maybe I can offer them some guidance on what does it look like when you grow your company right. from 10 to 100, or what does it look like when you're trying to sell into a government entity? Right. You mentioned like zone of strength multiple times. How does a founder decide or become self-aware about what is a zone of strength versus a zone of less strength versus a zone of no strength? For me, if I've learned anything, it's that people typically don't have a good sense of what their where their own strengths mm. is relative to how it is objectively in the world. Right. And why do I say this? Depending on the culture that you're coming right. from, sometimes some cultures would overrate. People would come in and think that they are far above where they actually right. are. And you have certain cultures, many of which are on this side of the world, where you're brought up believing you're not very good right. at something, but then everything else would suggest otherwise. Right. And so I actually find that when looking for strengths, it's important to chat with people around you right. from different circles and see what are some of the trends that come up. Right. And if there are people that you know are strong in a particular area, and they also say that you are strong in that same area, that's when you should start to listen mm -hmm. more. And then if you have multiple people from different circles starting to say the same thing, that's also where you should listen to. And so we try and be that validation often Sometimes for founders, right. we'll bring in advisors and others that look at a product or look at a founder and try and validate and then base our investment decisions off of that. Great. And on that note, could you share about time that you personally have been brave? Yeah, absolutely. It goes back to 10 years yeah. ago. Things were, were going really well. 
I was taking on more responsibility Facebook, but just in my mind, it wasn't in a good place. Right. And something that I struggled with for a while was whether to ask for help or not. Mm. And I ended up getting an executive coach and that was just great in terms of being a sounding board for me to chat with. And I would attribute a lot of the unblocking that I've been able to do in the reflection because that person was able to both encourage me, but also challenge well. And as a male in Asian society, there is this stigma against asking for mm. help. And then mental health oftentimes is brought up as people will look at that and they'll be, that's not real, <laughs> right? It's like, you should just work. And the more you work, the less you'll think about that. But with everything around us now, all of that noise, I do think it's important for everybody, but particularly for those on that startup journey right. to ask for help. It's well accepted that if you're a musician that wants to do well in your field, you would have a mm. teacher. It's well accepted that if you're training for the Olympics, that you would have a coach. Right. But for some reason, that hasn't translated into all of the fields out there. And it hasn't translated as well from the West into this part of the world. Right. And so that's something that I want to change. What's interesting is it's less about how to get help, but whether to ask for help. And I think that's an interesting thing. What prevents people from saying, I should get help versus I should not get help from your perspective? Yeah, I think sometimes it's about pride and ego. Yeah. And then on the flip side, sometimes it's maybe related to that, but it's a sign of weakness in many mm. ways if you're asking for help. Right. We've all grown up or heard those stories of, of our friends where they'll wake up with a headache or they'll say, hey, my mind's not right today. And then as, as youngsters, we'll be told by our parents, oh, just study more. It'll go away. <laughs> That's the best way to make stuff like this go away, yeah. right? And I think, again, the, the more traditional generations, they're just coming from a different place. Right. Because when you're coming from a pl place of thinking about survival, that's ultimately what you right. do. If you're coming from a place where we have the luxury of wanting to aspire to something and all the complexity and all the difficulty that comes from building something that can positively impact, right. let's say, hundreds of millions of people, right. that wasn't possible right. 100 years ago. There's also just the associated stress that comes with right. it. The thought that somebody could do that on their own and carry it on their own shoulders without right. asking for, for help, to me, it just isn't possible. Right. And so it's important to me for the startup founders, but for all of us to continue to seek the areas where we're strong and focus more time on those, right. but also be really willing to, to ask for help as well. If somebody is telling themselves they shouldn't ask for help, but they at some level also feel like they want to ask for help, how would they, how should they go about unblocking or is it uncontradicting themselves and moving from one side to action and getting help? Yeah. I think I, I go back to the examples in other industries and other domains. Right. If you're training for the Olympics, that means really good at something. And you're bordering on world class. Right. You would never train for the Olympics without asking for help, not just from anybody, but from somebody that probably has gotten the medal that you want. <laughs> and so right. the more with ourselves that we can get away from this thought that when we ask for help, we, when we hire a coach or, or just get somebody to coach us, if we can get away from the stigma that we get a coach when something has gone wrong right. versus we get a coach when we're doing well and when something has gone right, yeah. I think that could really help the, the, the mindset sets and, and clear the for people who need the help to get it. Right. As you kind of take a step back, obviously you've done a lot, you've built a lot, you've learned a lot, and you also changed directions quite a few times, including geography. If you could go back at a 10 year 
years in time, I guess when your kid was pretty young, one, <laughs> one year, year old, old then. then. Is there any advice you would give yourself back then if you're catching coffee with that younger version of yourself? Yeah, I would honestly just tell myself not to be so scared. I would say you, when you're looking at risk today, a lot of those things that you think could go wrong. I was thinking a lot back then about what could go wrong, mm. and part of that was how I grew up. But I wish I could go back and tell that person, what if it goes right? What are all of the possibilities that could be created? And this in many ways reflects how we interact with founders today, rather than coming from a, a place of what if this goes wrong? We're early stage investors in Southeast Asia. It's all about imagination. So we're asking ourselves, yes, of course there are risks, but what if it goes right? How valuable could this company be to, to, to this society? And if I've learned anything over the past 10 or 11 years, we're having more world-class founders building amazing companies out of this industry. Just to, to highlight a few, we've got this company called Core Next. So Core with a mm. Q, they're building picks and shovels for the AI industry. Right. Where we are, we've got this company based out of Singapore, another one based out of Singapore called Portcast. They're building software to help shipping companies predict demand, right? So that they can, companies like FedEx can then move the ships to those ports with higher demand. 10 years ago, I don't know if we would have been having the conversation that these types of hardware, software services, best in class, were being built in the region, but they are being built here today. And that's why, one of the reasons why, even though I was supposed to come to Singapore for two years and then go back to the US, at some point I said, no, I'm not going back. Because why would I go back to the U.S. when so much of the innovation and so much of the growth in the startup ecosystem is happening now? I came out here because I wanted to see all that stuff. And now 10 years later, a lot of it has happened, but a lot more is to happen. And if I went back to the Valley today, I'm sure things would be fine. But I also think there's probably thousands of people that look like me with that type of experience. But then being here today, I do think because I've grown up in the Valley and been fortunate enough to see the startups here over the last 10 years, I've got empathy for some of the local problems, some of the local challenges, some of the cultural distinctions. But I also have ingrained in me, what happens when people believe that a founder is capable of anything? That's the, 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 the confidence that I see in founders now, almost that Silicon Valley mindset where they're thinking about through a lens of imagination of what could go right. Wow. Amazing. That's a great way to uh, wrap things up here. I'd love to summarize the three big uh, takeaways I got from this. First of all, thank you so much for sharing about your early days, right? your early years as a student about being curious about having that bank balance open up at five, having that Apple stock from a young age and being able to see Apple from your home. I thought it was a really fascinating journey about what you learned in the early days, but also your curiosity about exchange rates and travel. But also, I think the early years about what it means uh, to have that learning mindset. And I thought it was really fascinating to hear that navigation between technology, business, and all of that. So really fascinating uh, conversation there. The second thing that I really enjoyed was actually hearing about your perspective on coaching. Uh, I think not just about what it is to coach startup founders and what startup founders should be coached on. But I thought it was more interesting to hear about that personal journey of yourself, that you want to take on more coaching, that you took on the practice uh, of coaching, that you got coached 
to be a coach that you had to face up to those questions that you were asking other people, but you had an answer for yourself. So that was just a really fascinating, I think, dynamic, right? And obviously, we also went on to talk about applications of that in the context of startups and founders and so, so forth. Uh, so I thought it was really uh, interesting to hear that. Lastly, thank you so much for being so open about risk and the judgment of risk. Is it actually risky? Is it a binary risk between, like you said, sitting at home versus jumping off a cliff? Uh, but I thought it was fascinating to hear about it from a theoretical perspective and also how you've seen it show up in the lives of the people you coach and the founders you work with. But also, I think it was interesting for you that this was the same advice that you would have given yourself 10 years ago to be thoughtful about fear and risk and decisiveness. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Andy. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.